Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. This week at Redeemer Church, we begin a new sermon series on the Old Testament book of Ruth. This small book, containing only four chapters, falls right after the book of Judges, which itself is a bit of a grim picture of Israel. As we will see in our study of Ruth, even though it is set during the time of the Judges, and tells the story of a family going through a very difficult time, it is also meant to be a refreshing parallel of God's grace, faithfulness, patience, and kindness to us. Though we will continue to have our ups and downs in our struggle with our sinful nature in this life, God is always faithful. We at Redeemer Church pray that you, through this series in Ruth, are refreshed and renewed in your joy of our Redeemer's salvation. So our passage for the sermon is uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which says this. In the days when the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Michael Badger. As most of you know, I am one of the elders here at Redeemer Church, one of the pastors. Uh, and if you were here last week, you know that we have officially ended our series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be starting a new sermon series on a book that is found within the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, no surprise, it's Ruth. Um, that kind of ruined the surprise, I guess, a little bit, but it's okay. Uh, but we're really kind of getting back to our bread and butter. Um, we believe that, uh, you know, as Redeemer Church, that the Holy Word of God is infallible. Uh, it's inerrant, and we believe that studying it gives us spiritual nourishment. It's, it's, it's truly reading and, and listening to the very words of God, and there's such benefit uh, to going one book at a time, and so that's what we're kind of getting back into. Again, it's our, it's our bread and butter. That's what we love doing. It's called expository preaching, and that's what we really love here, and so we're excited to get back into it. Uh, but now, before I go any further, one of the things that can sometimes get lost when we're studying the Bible, especially when you are taking it one book at a time, or maybe if you spend more time in the New Testament, or maybe if you spend more time in the Old Testament, is the fact that all of Scripture, all of it, as you've heard me say before, is just one grand narrative. It's a grand narrative of, of cosmic proportions, really. And this narrative began in Genesis, right? It, it began in the Garden of Eden, and then it reaches its climax in Jesus in the Gospels, and it has its consummation, its, its final end at the second coming of Christ in the book 
of Revelation. So all of Scripture kind of walks us through this grand narrative, which which sometimes is called the, the redemptive narrative, the story of how God redeems a people for Himself in this, in this broken and sinful world. And so all 66 books of the Bible that were written by 40 plus authors are just telling this, this one cohesive story. And it's really important to, to recognize that and to hold on to that truth. These 66 books of the Bible aren't disjointed from one another. And I know that can be sometimes difficult as, as we're reading books like, like Numbers or maybe Deuteronomy or Leviticus, but all of it, all of it is telling this one cohesive story of redemption. And this morning, as you've seen by the slides on the screen, as you've uh, heard uh, Katie already read from, we're beginning a new series on the book of Ruth. Now, this book is remarkable for a number of of reasons. I'm very excited to, to start. I was sharing that with Lewis at the, uh, before the sermon started, but uh, before the service started. But it's essentially a, a short story. And not just a short story, but it's, it's really a beautiful love story between two very unlikely people. But not only that, it's also a drama about a woman experiencing immense pain and loss feeling like there's no hope left in the world. It's a story about the human experience that, that many people throughout their life feel as if maybe the Lord has, has turned His hand against them. It's also a story about God's covenantal kindness, His covenantal love for His people and His providential care for them. And it's also about how God works His plan of salvation, not just in the grand movements of nations, but, but even within the everyday lives of, of individual people. And so ultimately, Ruth is a picture, it's a drama, it's an illustration that shows God's loving kindness in the grand narrative of redemption. It's really the, the whole Bible's story brought to us in the unfolding events of this family's life. And so I pray that, that you are as excited as I am to begin this new series on the book of Ruth. But before we dive in, as always, let us pray for guidance from God. Lord, I thank you so much for the immense privilege of gathering together with all of these wonderful saints this morning. God, as always, I, I pray that we don't lose sight of, of what a wonderful and amazing time this is. Lord, the fact that, that you have given us your word to, to study, to read. Lord, that we can, we can use this, this means of grace to, Lord, to, to learn more about you, to grow in our, in our knowledge and our wisdom of you, Lord, but ultimately, God, to, to grow closer to you and in our relationship with you. And so, God, I just, I pray, Lord, that you this morning remove me out of the equation, that your Holy Spirit just leads our time together, leads our, our study on Ruth. Lord, we love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, well, now the book of Ruth is set during a very specific time during the history of Israel. And the very first verse of chapter 1 actually clues us in on its particular setting. Take a look at verse 1. 
It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And I know what you're thinking. Slow down. We're going a little too fast already. So let's let's pause right there just, just for a second. Because the author of this book, by telling us that this story takes place in the day when the judges ruled, is telling us that this story of Ruth actually took place somewhere between the death of Joshua, who took up the mantle uh, after Moses died and led the people finally into the promised land. It's between that and the coronation of King Saul. And so it's what happened between the death of Joshua and the coronation of King Saul. And this period of time is known as the time of Judges. And if you are in the book of Ruth right now, if you just flip one book back, you will be in the book of Judges. Now, the time period between, uh, or the time period of the Judges that took place between Joshua and King Saul, it was really characterized by a reoccurring cycle. By a reoccurring cycle. The covenant community of Israel would sin and rebel against God most often through idolatry. But then God would act in judgment against His people, often by handing them over to foreign oppressors. And then the people would respond to God by repenting of their sin and crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And at the end of each cycle, the Lord would graciously rise up or raise up a deliverer, often called a judge, and in various ways, he would deliver the people of Israel. But sadly, the cycle would begin afresh, and God's people would rebel again against the Lord, and typically they would rebel even more egregiously than they did before. It was this vicious cycle that looked, honestly, more like a a downward spiral. And this is the cycle that you see happening again and again and again all throughout the book of Judges. And so it's important to note here that when this opening verse in Ruth says that this took place in the day of Judges, it's acting as a time marker. It's giving us an idea of the period of Israel's history in which this took place. But, of course, it's, it's not only that. It's not only that. It is also a theological and moral marker, kind of what we've already talked about. It is telling us the current moral state and theological state of Israel. It's cluing us in on what is happening in the culture around them. And Judges 21-25 really summarizes the culture by saying this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me read that one more time. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, friends, this is, this is really the sin that kind of begets all sin, right? This is the sin that began all the way back in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve were tempted to eat, the, uh, eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and they ate the fruit because they were tempted by Satan with the promise that they would become like God, being able to distinguish for themselves what is good and what is evil. Or in other words, doing what is right in their own eyes. This is what is called moral relativism. Each one, each human being, deciding for themselves what is right and what is wrong, independent from the Word of God. 
And this is, this is the root of sin. This is the root of mankind's rebellion against God. And we still see this sin clearly in our culture today. And you will find it in every single culture that, that ever was. You know, any time anyone is acting against the expressed will of God found within Scripture, they are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're making up morality for themselves. They are essentially saying that, that my sense of morality, my desires, what I want to be right for myself, and not only that, but, but what I believe to be wrong, what I believe to be morally reprehensible, takes precedence over what God deems to be right and what God deems to be wrong. Does that, does that sound familiar? Now, you may be tempted <laughs> right. I hope that was a sarcastic no. <laughs> but you may be tempted to think that doing what, in, what is right in your own eyes simply has these, these outward implications, meaning your, your outward actions. Doing what is right in your own eyes is these actions. But even when it comes to the sins of, of the inner person, you know, those sins that Jesus talks about in terms of your thought life or the sins that you commit in your heart, such as such as hating someone or lusting after another person's spouse, even those things at the most basic level is doing what is right in your own eyes. Let me explain for a second. If you are continuing to hate someone in your heart, or if you are choosing to dwell and feed lustful thoughts in your mind, then you are essentially saying that it is right in your eyes to continue sinning in those ways rather than repenting and rather than crying out for the Lord to help you and casting your mind on the, on the, on the things above. You're, you're essentially saying it's better for me to do that than to follow after what God says about those things. Allowing yourself to stew in sinful attitudes, allowing your mind to dwell on sinful thoughts, allowing your heart to hold on to unforgiveness or bitterness or, or hatred or lust, instead of repenting and asking the Lord for forgiveness and seeking to be sanctified in those areas, friends, that is doing what is right according to your own desires. So friends, when we see that this story of Ruth took place in the time of the judges. I don't, I don't want you to feel as if this story has no relevance to you because it is so displaced from us in, in time or culture. Rather, when you look at the surrounding culture of the book of Ruth, I really want you to see a culture that actually shares quite a lot of common with our own. Now, this story that we see, this narrative, this, this true event that, that took place has so much to teach us. God has so much to teach us in it. Now, just a quick recap. The story that is told within the book of Ruth is taking place between the death of Joshua and the coronation of King Saul during the time of Judges, during a time of moral relativism, of a cycle of rebellion, judgment, repentance, deliverance, and then rebellion all over again. That's what's going on here. Now, not only does the first verse of Ruth tell us that it took place in the time period of the judges, but it also tells us that there is a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife 
and two sons. And so there's a famine going on during this time, which, which actually indicates this being a, an especially wicked point in the time of Israel. Deuteronomy 28 says that one of the judgments of God for unfaithfulness would be the unfruitfulness of the land. And so a famine in the promised land was, was not a good sign. It didn't bode well for what was going on in the culture. And in a dark irony, this famine that we read of, specifically in verse 1, is seen striking Bethlehem. It's, it's hitting Bethlehem. Do you know what the name of Bethlehem actually means? House of bread. House of bread. House of bread. So the stage is set, right? And we begin to see the drama unfold as a man and his wife and two sons flee Israel, flee Bethlehem because of this famine. And then verse 2 then reads, The man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, I promise we're not going to go this slowly through the entirety of this sermon series, but I do believe that there is something to be gleaned even in this second verse that is worth really spending some time on this morning. So you see Elimelech is fleeing Israel. He's fleeing Bethlehem because of this salmon, or salmon, because of the famine, the lack of salmon maybe, <laughs> bringing his wife Naomi and his two sons with him. Now, on the surface, this may seem like a completely rational thing to do, right? If there's a famine in one land, you want to leave that land to go to another land where there's no famine going on. That seems perfectly normal to us. But friends, I think there's a lot more going on here than it may seem at first glance. You see, Elimelech and his wife and sons are, are part of the covenant community of Israel, right? They're not just just individual people living off by themselves. They're, they're, they're part of God's people, the covenant community. And God's people right now are in the midst of judgment, in the midst of godly discipline, you could say. This famine has been ordained by God to show the people of Israel that they have fallen into deep sin, that they have turned their back on Him and have gone to false idols. And so God is using this famine as a means to put their sinfulness before them and bring them back to Himself. And here, in this time of crisis, in this time of godly discipline, Elimelech really has two roads set before him. To either do what is right in his own eyes and leave the covenant community of God to find respite from the famine in a foreign land, or follow the road of repentance and faith, staying with God's people and trusting the Lord to provide for his family's needs. And as we read in verse 1 and 2, it's clear which path Elimelech chooses. Rather than staying in Israel with the other people of God and, and turning to the Lord and, and trusting in Him, he does, he does what is right in his own eyes. He does what is rational to the, to the human mind. He packs up his family and he leaves Moab. Now, it's important to note that the book of Ruth doesn't really just go out of its way to, to condemn Elimelech. 
But I still believe that we can draw parallels with what is going on here in these first two verses with this family, with what is going on in the larger picture of the time of the judges. You see, in the narrative of the book of Judges, the response of the Israelites when they're facing moments of crisis due to God disciplining them for their sinfulness, whether it be in the nation as a whole or or individually, what God desires them to do in these moments is not to continue doing what is right in their own eyes, not to just run and flee and try to escape the judgment of God in their own power, but rather the response that God truly desires of His people is to repent and turn to Him. That's what he wants. That's his heart's desire. To place their faith in him and not in false idols and not in their own own sense of what is right and what is wrong. And of course, there's parallels to our own lives as Christians right here that that are pretty obvious. Now, I believe that trials and difficulties in life can come to a believer for two different reasons. The first is from the fatherly discipline of God. The fatherly discipline of God. And the second is from just living in a broken and fallen world. And I want to speak of how Scripture calls us to respond to both, but I want to begin with the discipline of God because I believe that that this is what we see most in these opening couple verses in Ruth. Now, a difficult truth that we typically try to avoid in, in most modern churches is that there are certainly times when difficulties arise in your life that are a result uh, a result of the fatherly discipline of God because you have an un, or an indwelling sin that thus far you have refused to repent of but here's something extremely important because we often think when something bad happens to us is because we have evoked the wrath of God right he is, he's pouring out his, his wrath onto us. We have an angry God just right on our backs, and he's doing his best to just make our lives miserable because we've, we've just made him mad. And we'll talk about that kind of attitude in a future sermon. But Christian, if you are experiencing a hardship in your life and you believe that it is due to some sin that you've not turned from, that you've not put to death in your own life, you must know that the Lord is giving you that discipline, not because He is filled with wrath toward you, but because He loves you with the desperation of a father whose child is harming themselves and harming their relationship. You see the difference there? He's disciplining you not because he finds delight in it, but because he wants to see your relationship with him restored and strengthened. That's Hebrews 12, 6, right? The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you that if you are going through some sort of difficulty in life that you identify as possibly being from the Lord by Him disciplining you for some sort of indwelling sin, do do not take the lesson from Elimelech. Don't follow down the road that he went down because instead of recognizing what the Lord was doing in the famine as a mercy that was meant to put the sin of Israel in front of them, and instead of turning to him in repentance, what did he do? What did Elimelech do? 
He did what was right in his own eyes, and he ran from it. And in doing so, he ran from God. So friends, if this is hitting home with you, I urge that you respond to this discipline, not by running from it, but by running into the arms of your Father who is ready to forgive. And because of the work of Christ, because of the work that He accomplished on the cross, you can go before Him and you can ask for forgiveness in confidence, knowing that Jesus has already secured the forgiveness of all your sins. Friends, it may not seem like it on the outset, but the book of Judges is actually an extraordinarily hopeful book. Really doesn't seem like that when you're reading through it, right? You just kind of get frustrated at the, at the Israelites for constantly turning back, and it seems kind of like a, a, a dour and, and a hopeless book. But really, it's a hopeful book because it doesn't matter how many times God's people rebelled against Him and, and fall into sin, He is faithful every single time to respond in deliverance when they turn back to Him and ask for forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? The book of Judges is really a book about the faithfulness of God to His people. Isn't that amazing? And what a hopeful message that is for us because it foreshadows our own forgiveness in Christ. That even though we as believers fall into sin again and again, God is always faithful. And the blood of the Lamb is ever sufficient to cover every single sin we have and ever will commit. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, what a hopeful message we have in Christ. Now, as I said a moment ago, difficulties and hardship come in this life, not only by the discipline of God, but also simply as a result of living in a fallen world. And this is an important point because there'll be, there'll be false teachers out there who will tell you that every single difficulty in your life, every single illness, every single bad thing that happens to you is because God is angry at you and He is causing these things to happen and, and you just need to have stronger faith. That's, that is not the case, brothers and sisters. There are times where things happen in our lives because we live in a broken and sinful world that is groaning for redemption, right? But, Again, here is where we see Elimelech fail. You see, Elimelech leaving Bethlehem was a sign that he did not recognize that Israel was undergoing discipline from God, right? That was kind of evidence of that. And the right response was to, re, uh, to turn to God in repentance. But Elimelech's actions also showed his lack of faith, his, his lack of trust in God. So it showed that he didn't recognize the, the grand story, what was going on in the time of, of the judges and, and what was going on in this famine in Bethlehem. And he didn't recognize that, that he needed to repent. And he also didn't recognize that his leaving showed a lack of trust in God. This was the attitude of Israel as a whole during this period. They began to stop trusting, stop having faith in the ever-faithful God who delivered them from Egypt, right? Who, who brought them and gave them victory in the promised land. And they began to put their trust elsewhere, in, the, in themselves, 
and in idols. And this was true for Elimelech, it seems. Now, rather than staying in the promised land and having faith in God to care for the needs of his family, Elimelech put his faith in himself and again did what was right in his own eyes. And he took his family away from God, away from the covenant community in Israel. Essentially, this was Elimelech not trusting in the promise that God made to Israel in Exodus 19, that if they trust and obey God, they would prosper. So friends, how easy is it for us, for you and I, to struggle to have this trust in God as well? I pray that I'm not just preaching to myself. Because when we are faced with with sufferings and trials and hardships in this life that aren't due to indwelling sin, but are just part of living in the sin-riddled world, how easy can it be to lose faith in God to take care of us? You see, having faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior is not simply, it's not simply believing with your mind that the claims that Scripture makes about Him are true. It's not just, just intellectually assenting to the fact that, that Jesus was God or that He died on the cross or that He did all of these things. Yeah, but rather, having faith, having true saving faith in God is trusting in Him. Trusting that those things that, that He promised us, promised you, are true. It's, it's laying your life into it. But how often do we divert our faith when things get rough? How often, when things get difficult, our minds start wandering away from those wonderful promises that, that Christ has made us and we, and we put it into whatever seems right in our own eyes? In the case of Elimelech, he did not have faith in God to keep his promises to his people and consequently to his family. And so in this crisis, in this famine, he not only missed the opportunity to repent, but he chose to trust in himself. Just do what was right in his own mind and did what, what seemed right to him and followed what appeared to be the best prospects for supporting his family according to just his own judgment. Now friends, I don't want to put too much on this particular narrative because we're not really told this in the passage, but I do believe from the principles we see in the rest of Scripture that even though Elimelech may have been able to obtain physical food and physical nourishment by leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab, I believe that it came at a dire cost. I believe it came at the cost of, of spiritual nourishment and, and spiritual food. I believe it came at the cost of his relationship, not just with the covenant people of Israel, but his relationship with the faithful God of Israel. So the question that I want to pose to you and, and even to myself is when those defining moments happen in your life, those moments that can rock you and make you feel like the ground is crumbling, crumbling beneath you or, or maybe swallowing you up, what, what road are you going to choose? Are, are you or are, are we going to choose the road that leads to God and, and trusting Him? 
Or are we going to choose the road that leads to us trusting in ourselves and or, or in someone or something other than God? And friends, often these crises in life can expose to us that, that we have a problem in trusting God. As soon as suffering comes upon us, we can often forget or doubt that He has what it takes to see us through. And so we need to take our life into our own hands and try to navigate our problems in our own power, in our own way. Well, friends, there is wisdom in Proverbs 14, 12 that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is death. So it might feel right and comfortable or easier, whatever else, to trust in your own instincts and, and not to trust in God and whatever difficult situation arises in your life. But it is a road that ultimately ends in the long run and in, in, in not deliverance, but, but spiritual emptiness, a, a lack of peace. Let me just think for a minute, trying to Solve all of your problems in life on your own or relying on yourself. And it's such a tentative place to be. I mean, you know how broken you are. I know how broken I am. And to think that I can be a sure and steady anchor in my own life? Man, I can't even guarantee I'm going to wake up on time. But Christian, the good news is, is that we have already been given Everything that we need to make it through any and every suffering that could ever come our way in this life. You have been given the ultimate resource to handle loss, to handle pain, to handle illness, tragedy, death, all of it. You have been given God Himself. Do you you understand that? Now, last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit is the seal that has been given to us that guarantees that there is nothing that this broken and desperately sinful world can throw at us that we, in the end, will not stand in victory over. He is the guarantee that His promises that all of the hardships and trials, all the heartache, all the unexpected crises that we go through, whether it be because of simply living in a fallen world or or if it is the result of fatherly discipline because of some sin that we've refused to repent of, all of it, all of it is working for our good to bring us into closer relationship with Himself, to build our character, to give us steadfastness in faith. That's 1 Peter 5.10, right? It says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a promise we, we have. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
So friends, this is, this is why we don't have to follow in the footsteps of Elimelech. Who, when the trials came to his doorstep, did what was right in his own eyes without any reference to God. Elimelech's name literally, literally means, my God is king. But friends, he, he, as one commentator put it, he lived as king of his own life and did not trust in the providence, the provision of God to meet his true needs. So let us, let's not be like Elimelech. Let us not seek comfort and security outside of God's covenant community, His church, and outside of His presence. But let us turn to God and trust in His provision that He has already given us. And though that provision may not always look like the physical or material things we, we think we want or need in the moment, He will provide us with a, a spiritual sustenance that is sweeter than honey and more filling to our souls than anything this world could offer. Jesus makes this promise in John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So when those Elimelech-like crises happen in your life, will you turn to that promise made to you by your Savior and have your fill of the bread of life? Or will you trust what is right in your own eyes? Let's ask the Lord to give us the faith of Paul, who said this, even though he was in prison. It says this in Philippians 4, 10 through 13. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, and remember, he's in prison right now. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Man, how many of us can say that? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In the famous verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Friends, you can weather the storm. You can handle those crises that come up in your life. Not because, not because you're powerful. Not because you have just naturally in you the, the stuff to make it through on your own. But because of Christ in you, you can do all things. Friends, that is trusting in the Lord. Even when it seems foolish to do so in the eyes of the Lord. So let us pray for that faith in the trials of this life. Now, don't worry, in this sermon, we're not going to be just stuck on verse 2. We're actually going to make it down to verse 5. So, but I'm not really going to expound on these next few verses uh, today, but they're, they're going to kind of prepare us for the next week's sermons. And so let us take a look at verses 3 through 5. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we learn that not too long after the family arrives in Moab, Elimelech dies, and ten years later, his children die, leaving his wife Naomi without a husband and without her two boys. And now while verse 5 ends on an incredibly heartbreaking note, as we will see in future sermons, even in the midst of the pain of living in this world, friends, we can trust and have peace knowing that the sovereign hand of God is lovingly at work bringing about His plan of redemption. But we'll be exploring that more in the following weeks. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I ask for forgiveness, Lord. For times when, Lord, the, the difficulties in life come at me. And yet, Lord, instead of turning to you, Lord, instead of instead of trusting in you and the promises that you have made me within Scripture, God, I've I've rested on my own understanding. I've rested in my own way of doing things and doing what is right in my own eyes. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you help us this morning, and not just this morning, but, Lord, through the rest of our lives, through the rest of our walk with you until until we reach glory. God, help us turn to you like Paul. Help us turn to you in times of plenty and help us turn to you in times of need. Let us not fall into our old way of being, into our old self, Lord, that that we need to seek to to cast off, where we try to make up what is right and wrong in our own minds, but rather we, we turn to you and we turn to your word and seek to be content in all things because we can do all things in Christ who strengthens us. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.